Welcome to Cyberology, Dakota State University's new podcast, where we'll be sharing and discussing all things cyber. I'm Jen Burris from the Marketing and Communications Department at DSU, and I'll be your host. Today, we'll be talking about cybercrime, which generally speaking is considered a criminal activity involving a computer, network, or network device. And I have a couple of experts here with me. I'm excited to welcome my illustrious co-host for the episode, Dr. Ashley Podorowski. Ashley is a woman of many accomplishments and almost as many titles at DSU. She is an associate dean in the Beacon College of Computer and Cyber Sciences, where she is also associate professor of digital forensics. She is the founding director of DigForce, a digital forensics lab that is a regional resource for law enforcement agencies and businesses who have been victimized by cyber criminals. She is also founder of CyPer, a program with the mission of empowering, motivating, educating, and changing the perceptions of girls and women in cybersecurity. But that's not it. She's currently serving as interim vice president of research and economic development here. Ashley, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, that is a big list there (laughs) as you're reading it. I am excited to be here today and talk about the work that Dr. Erica Colm is doing in the DigForce lab at Dakota State University. Connecting with students is one of my favorite things about being a professor. You get to learn their strengths, their interests, and watch them excel in their career. I met Erica when she was coming to study her master's degree, and then I asked her, would you consider a PhD? And I was thrilled when she said yes. Today, Dr. Cohn is the first graduate of our PhD in cyber defense program and is our lead digital forensic analyst in the DigForce lab. Creating that lab is something that is a big passion of mine because our field of digital forensics and incident response helps people, organizations, and the government here in South Dakota and beyond address cybercrime. Amazing. And with that, why don't we have Erica talk a little bit about herself? Yeah, so thank you, Ashley, for that generous introduction. Like Ashley said, I came to DSU to pursue a master's degree, kind of a career change for me. And I found myself wanting to get into a field that was interesting and impactful. And I think that's what I said. I was looking for a job that would be something that was interesting and made an impact on people. And when I was going through the master's program, people had often asked me, like, what are you going to do when you're done? And that always made me uncomfortable because I, I really didn't know. And I knew I liked forensic, I knew it was interesting, but in our area, so often that leads to law enforcement, which obviously I don't have a background in law enforcement. So I really was fortunate to be here right at the perfect time when DigForce was being launched. And honestly, when I started the master's program, I had no intention of pursuing a PhD, but same thing, perfect timing, the cyber defense PhD happened to be offered right at the same time that I was finishing the master's program. And I thought, Sure. Why not? I had finished basically all the core classes and had the research classes and a dissertation left. And I thought, well, dissertation doesn't seem so hard, (laughs) which in hindsight was um, a little short-sighted. But I'm now finished and fortunate enough to be working in the lab. And I get to come to work every day and and do a job that I love doing and do it with people that I really enjoy being with. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. 
We're at the intersection in our field. Their technology and IoT, our wearables, our phone has become such an integrated part of our life. And at the same point, people then do things they shouldn't do with those devices and investigating what data resides on the device, where the device was, what the people did with it. That's what this field is all about. And having a person who's inquisitive and intelligent and can take those puzzle pieces and put them together and tell a story is what this field is. And Erica excels in that space. And fortunately, with her leadership and work, we've been able to help quite a few agencies investigate cybercrime that's occurred throughout our state. Is that something that happens quite frequently? It's very frequent. So and it depends on what you consider a cybercrime, because what we do in the lab is more host-based device forensics versus, you know, a network intrusion or data breach or that type of thing. And we can certainly do that. But what we've done up to this point is more the host device forensics at this point. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about what the process is like with the host forensics? Sure. So, you know, like Ashley said, we work with different agencies here in the state and some federal agencies as well. So when they have a criminal investigation where they've seized a device, they'll submit it to us. And it always has to come along with the proper paperwork. So either search warrant or signed consent form. And we read that form to see what we're authorized to look for, because it's not always a blanket consent to look for everything that there is on the device. So if it's a drug case, we're looking at chat information, images, communications, that type of thing. And we extract the data in a forensically sound way mm-hmm. and go through and look for whatever we're looking for. And then a big part of what we do is write very detailed reports. We write how we got the device, step-by-step step, everything we did with it to document that, and then what our findings are. And so a couple of things that we really need to be conscious of are being very detail-oriented and having very good writing skills. One of the last reports I did was, I think, 50 pages. So, wow, it's yeah, it can be a long time consuming, long and time consuming. But, you know, Ashley mentioned it being like a puzzle. It's also starting a new case is a little bit like reading a book. You know, you're reading through the case report to see what it's all about. And then you're going through that evidence to see what evidence that you have there matches up with what you're finding in the case report. And kind of like a book you're reading, sometimes it's super interesting and you're you're really kind of sad when you get to the end. And sometimes about halfway through, you're just like, I just (laughs) want to be done with this. Even And you can't, you know, Uh you can't just shut and be done. You have to finish and, and do a thorough job no matter what it is. But that's what I would kind of equate it to also is kind of like reading a book. Okay. So the lab's working on a lot of drug cases, as Erica mentioned, but another example would be embezzlement. And people that are in business together, perhaps one starts selling inventory online and is cutting the partner out of the profits. So taking a look at the different sites they visited, the different transactions they have on their machine or system, and the communication that they had. People document a tremendous amount of things that they're doing, and being able to pull those pieces together to share what happened is all part of this space. Do you think some people even document things that they might not realize are telling on themselves? Mm -hmm. Do you find that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I find a lot of screenshots, people (laughs) that they may delete the text message, but they've screenshotted the text and it's saved as an image on their phone. I have a lot of screenshots on my phone. Yeah. You wouldn't want someone going through years of your screenshots. No. No. Even even as an innocent person, I don't want somebody (laughs) going through my phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. So what is a standard day for you when you're working on a case? Is it all research and reporting or? It varies. I would say we average probably three cases being submitted a week. So it's coordinating with those law enforcement officials if they're going to drop it off or if it gets sent to our office. So it's, you know, intaking the device and the information. We photograph everything when we get it. We make sure that we have all the proper documentation. If there's any questions, then we communicate back with them. If we have any questions on what they're seeking or what they're looking for. Once we photograph it, then we're doing the extraction. So we're working with the device itself. And then once we're done with that, then we're processing it and then looking through that information. So it's, you know, some days are routine and you're kind of doing the same thing, but other days, not so much. And it's, you know, coordinating with those officials as well. So... Would you say there's a lot of collaboration in your department in Dick Force, or is it kind of... It's pretty solo, solo? a lot of the times. Okay. Yeah. If we're doing research, there's collaboration. We, and we have a research uh, student employee that works in our office, too, who's a great help to us. And he does a lot of our research for us. If we have something that we're not sure, you know, we get a new device. We got a GPS device in last week that we haven't done before. So it's having him, you know, look up. He doesn't do the work on the device itself because that's evidence, but, you know, he can do the research online and try to figure out, you know, what would be the first step to do with that? How would we handle that? Yeah, and that's really helpful, having our student employees who don't touch anything with the actual case, but we can say, here's this new router or here's this IoT wearable device. Tell us what other people have found. What have people published about it? So that way we can take that in and use that to advance the work. And we're fortunate we have a student right now who's reliable, great communication skills, and just a great student. So it's a nice learning experience. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not always that easy to find. So I'm very thankful for that as well. I'd like to bring up one of our specialties that we have in the lab. And I'm going to tee this up for Erica because she's not going to say how awesome she is in this space. But the dark web is such an emerging part of our work. Criminals are using it to obfuscate their location. There's transactions that are occurring on it of illicit goods. And there are very few forensic investigators that understand how to find host-based dark web artifacts on a machine, whether that's a Linux or a phone or a Windows. Windows-based system. Dr. Combs' dissertation was focused on this. She spent a couple of years of honing her skills and understanding what data resides and how you can analyze it and use it in your case. So she's gotten to the point where, you know, she is that national leader in this space. And, you know, people have been using the dark web for a long time, but more people are starting to understand that it's being used and they're recognizing that they don't have the knowledge to properly investigate it. So that means that a lot of people are perhaps walking on situations that they could have been prosecuted on. So I'd like if Eric could, could talk to us about her work on host-based dark web artifacts and perhaps any anecdotes of cases where she she has used that. Yeah, so my dissertation was on um, finding those host-based artifacts and creating a framework that investigators could use to assist in finding those because they're not always obvious and, and easy to find. So I used um, Justin Nordine's OSINT framework, and it's a clickable framework, so you can go in and it it's a yes-no, if it's this, then is it that type of framework. So you go in, and the first question is, are you dealing with Windows? Are you dealing with Mac OS? Or do you have a Tails drive, which is a bootable operating system? system to access the dark web. And then as you step through each one, it asks a series of questions to help walk you through what you're trying to find on that system. And then as you get through it, it gives you 
the artifacts that you can look for. And, and not, not all artifacts that are listed on the framework will you necessarily find on a system. And there may be artifacts that are on a system that may not be in the framework. It's, you know, obviously with any framework, it's a work in progress. But it is a good guideline to help investigators find those artifacts. And a uh, way that I used to validate it was to have our South Dakota DCI ICAC task force, the, some of the members from that, go through and, and validate it and use it and actually use it on an actual case to find some of those. And one of the things we're finding, and we've had a couple of cases recently, that the people that are using the dark web to go out and buy drugs are high school students. So... Even though I would say millennials and older may have heard of the dark web and think, ooh, you know, I don't know what that is. The the kids know what it is. I find it an interesting topic, but I know very little about the dark web itself. Right. It's this mysterious, we know it's there, but maybe don't want to talk about it. Why do you think that is? I would equate it to ICAC a little bit. Like, you know, it's there, but it's maybe a little distasteful, so you don't necessarily want to address it. ICAC is Internet Crimes Against Children. It's a lot of the child pornography casework that's done. You know, it's there. You know, it's happening but maybe not to the magnitude it is. And if we just don't talk about it, then it's not an issue, which we know that's not the case. So So when you go to Google and Uh you put a search term in, you're going to get page results that have been indexed based on those keywords. When you go to the dark web, so traditionally you use a utility like Tor, the onion router, to get on the dark web, and pages aren't indexed. You have the .onion link at the end. And so they're alphanumeric. You're not going to know what it is. It's not CNN.com, FoxNews.com. It's 1A7W8, you know. There's 16 characters or longer Mm -hmm. and not easily rememberable. You have to go look them up and cut and paste or type them in. So the point is, to get where you're going, you have to know what's there. And people move their sites around so often so that way people don't find them. But there are some well-known marketplaces that have had a persistent connection. There's also some legitimate uses to the technology. So the New York Times has a dot .onion page because people all across the world who might be in countries where that type of news is prohibited, they can actually read it. And so it was actually designed by our government for our citizens across the world to communicate anonymously. So with that anonymous ability, people started realizing that, hey, I could do more than just send a message back to the states. I might be able to make a transaction and people can't necessarily necessarily trace. So when you log on here in Madison, South Dakota, it takes your web connection and it's going to pop it all the way around the world for multiple routers. The onion, onions have layers. It's going to go mm-hmm. from layer to layer and then it's going to show that your exit node might be Russia or it might be North Korea. So it just depends. But the whole point is it's obfuscated your location through enough hops that we can't really tell where you're coming from. And that makes it harder then to find the person committing whatever acts that they're doing, right? Yes, absolutely. And it also encrypts that data along each step so that not only is it obfuscated, it's encrypted. So you don't know what's inside that data until it gets to the very end. So both of those things together lend itself to criminal activity. But it was created for data privacy. Mm -hmm. You know, we create a lot of things for good and then people think, hey, I could use that (laughs) for the opposite reason. And so that's why we need people like Dr. Calm who can do these types of investigations. 
And what interested you in doing that dissertation on the dark web and getting further into that So I had never heard of the dark web until Ashley, you had asked me to do some research on it. And I'm like, how can this be? That was your first time. That was the first time (laughs) that I had gotten into it. I mean, I probably heard of it. Yeah. I was going on a long flight. So I asked her to put together a little read book with some some new technologies in this space. Yeah. I love that. So as I got into it, I'm like, how can it be that this is not traceable. This doesn't seem possible that you can leave no trace behind. Knowing what we know about forensics, Mm -hmm. that just doesn't seem possible. The traces are minimal. And like anything, depending on the sophistication of the criminal, is what's left behind. So if they're sophisticated enough, there may not be much trace left if you use something like tails. Dr. Josh Droshine and I, um, we we did a case down at the FBI in, in Omaha a few years ago about de-anonymizing tour traffic. And if there's some misconfigurations in settings within your browser, we can start to see the true IP. It's not masked like it was before. But those are situations that are always emerging because mm-hmm. you don't know how a configuration setting is going to change the output unless you really dig for it. So there are possibilities, but it's just, it's not something that is an absolute. Okay. And when you find these traces, does it lead to more information about what's going on? Are you pretty solid in being able to expand upon it once you find one in? You can, yeah. It can show you, you know, sites that were visited, what, you know, it can be images that were downloaded from those sites. And you'll find the dark webs full of, can be full of malware. So you may find traces of malware on that system. You can find that they installed Tor, which like Ashley said, it's used for privacy. So it doesn't in and of itself mean that they were doing something criminal, but that combined with some of the other things can often be an indicator of what they were doing. Yeah. Very cool. I think that that is something that a lot of people are interested in and don't know a lot about. So I'm glad we covered that topic. Can you tell how the dark web might impact everyday people or if it does? I don't know that it really does if you don't go out and look for it. It'd be something for parents to be aware of. If you're a parent of a teenager, packages start showing up in the mail that you don't know what they are. Because that's that's how you, if you're ordering something on the dark web, that's generally how they show up as U.S. Post Office. So, you know your student starts acting funny and that would be something to be aware of. Yeah, there's been a few different cases that we've done have been started with a tip from the post office Mm -hmm. of multiple packages being delivered. That goes to law enforcement. Law enforcement does their investigation. They confiscate the devices. They turn them over to us to analyze. There was a situation in Brookings where um, someone was using stolen credit cards to purchase goods and having them shipped to their residence. So, you know, they might say, well, they just showed up. Uh, But once you look at the system, it says, well, they showed up because you bought them. (laughs) (laughs) You put those transactions on your system. So, you know, there's, there's tells and things like that as well. And do you always know what you're looking for? Not always. Um, no, the last case that I had, it was not a drug case. It had started out as... Um, domestic terrorism. Yeah, domestic terrorism. Thank you. That was a good word. And as I was looking for evidence of that, I started seeing some of these other indicators of dark web activity with weapons and, and drugs, as it turned out. So it's not always what it seems. Hmm. I don't know how I would react if I were the one finding that information out. So 
How do you guys feel when you start to kind of solve the case, so to speak? It just kind of depends on the nature of the case. You know, if we're in there, like I said, with a search warrant, where it's not always a blanket, look for everything type of case. So if we're in there looking for drugs, for example, and we find child pornography, that's something I have to stop right there. I can't investigate that for two reasons. Number one, we're not a law enforcement facility, so we can't possess that any more legally than anyone else can. So at that point, we stop and turn it over to the DCI investigators to to do that. And the search warrant doesn't specifically say that's what we're looking for. So that's something that we can't do. So, and that would be a case where we'd have to just stop and then we don't always know what happens to that case. So So that can be a little frustrating. DCI would take over the case completely at that point. Correct. Correct. Yep. And and that can be a little, not not frustrating that we're turning it over to them because they're, I mean, more than capable and, and we know it's in good hands then, but we don't always know what happens to it at that point. The Digital Forensics Lab at Dakota State University has dual leadership. We know that we need academic leadership for our DSU side, but we need law enforcement leadership through the DCI side, Divisional Criminal Investigation. So I worked jointly with um, Agent Toby Russell. He is a DCI agent and he's in our lab and works with Erica. He works with Erica more than I do on a daily basis and he's has a wealth of information and knowledge. So our funding through the Attorney General's Office supports the leadership between DSU and DCI in order to have this lab so that That way, the output and reports that we do are accepted in law enforcement. Erica goes and testifies in court and participates in expert witness testimony and and does those things. So through our funding through the Attorney General's Office and Consumer Protection and our partnership with the Division of Criminal Investigation, we're set up to succeed in this space and assist law enforcement in South Dakota in helping solve cybercrime. In addition to the digital forensic casework that Dr. Combe leads with our partners in DCI, we also do uh, investigations for consumer protection in the attorney general's office. So individuals, organizations, government entities in the state of South Dakota who have had a crime or cybercrime in, in that regard. So perhaps it is a scam where a business lost $50,000 on payroll diversion. Perhaps it's a scam where someone was tricked into buying gift cards because the CEO asked them to, and they need to figure out who that person was. So we've helped in multi-million dollar scams that have arisen here in South Dakota for, as I mentioned, individual people, businesses, private entities, and the state government. Do you think that a lot of people don't hear about these things? Because when I think about South Dakota, I don't think about multi-million dollar scams taking place. Yeah, yeah. People aren't excited to advertise that they were scammed out of money because you might not have as much confidence in that business and their operations. And so um, people think, well, we have our data breach notification law. We should know this stuff now. Well, not really, because there are certain parameters that have to be met. And uh, a loss of a million dollars doesn't meet that threshold because you didn't lose personal identifying information. 
And so there are things that happen daily here in the state, unfortunately. But the biggest takeaway from all the cases that we looked at is when you incorporate the human into it, you can usually stop it in its tracks. So it's very common for HR departments all across our state and country to get an email from someone or a fax that says, I updated my checking account. Please use this new routing and new account number to process my next payroll. Oftentimes, that form is found on their website so they can find out and it lists on their facts that here, you know, they might go out to LinkedIn and say, hey, I know this executive works at this company. Here's the form to change his payroll and here's where I fax it. And so the number one thing people can do is just pick up the phone and say, hey, um, Mrs. CEO, did you really change your payroll? And if it's no, then don't process it. So, you know, schools are hit hard in that area. Municipalities are hit hard in that area. And it's all about trying to balance the scam with the quickness that we're set to operate. And when you throw in a virtual world of the pandemic, it it further exacerbates that. So whenever you hear something or get something in that context, just reach out and call the person. Don't email them back. Hey, is this really you, Mrs. CEO? Well, they're going to say yes. (laughs) And it might not be. So it likely isn't. So just uh, as a tip, always reach out. And I think CEOs can help themselves too by informing their staff, I will never ask you yeah. to buy gift cards mm-hmm. or that type of thing. And it's so easy just to handle everything by email. And, and I get that. But the personal connection, just pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, Ashley, you didn't mention that we also do for the Attorney General's office is consumer education. Yes, yes. You know, we do a lot of that out of our lab just to help consumers, you know, pr- protect their private information, whether it's on social media or just educating them about what they're putting out there. And just know what of your data that you are putting out there for people to then use to, you know, then further these scams. You know, and that's the uniqueness that we bring to the table as a an educational entity is that our core is education. And yes, we can do, we can do the applied work, we can do the casework, we can help them solve what they need to solve. But on the reverse, we also are incorporating the human factor into it along with the education of, well, if we're seeing so many of these, can't we just turn that around and help train people a little bit better? Can't we help educate our our citizens in the state that you should not send someone you met on Facebook money? Um, you know, those kind of things. So the romance scams that we see in our state, all of those types of scams that impact our citizens, it just kind of breaks your heart. And so as uh, Dr. Cole mentioned, we are incorporating those common lesson learned into outreach for AARP and things like that. And I think people see those on the news and think, oh my gosh, how could you ever fall for that? But it happens mm-hmm. all the time. And I think people just get caught up in it. And sometimes they know themselves mm-hmm. and just can't, either can't or won't get out of it mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason. And it, it's hard. And they're very good at it. They, they aren't making all this money scamming people because they're bad at it. And do you think that scams are something that every citizen should be educating themselves about? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. 
And be aware of your own information that you're putting online. You know, we live in a world of social media, but you don't have to put everything out there. You know, I have a seven-year-old daughter, and when I let her play on games like Roadblocks, it's always when I'm right there with her. So she was in the kitchen, and I was making dinner, and someone sent her, and I tell her, you can play the games, but you can't chat with anyone. Well, a chat popped up, and they said, I know where you live. And Chloe, my daughter, she's like, someone says they know where I live. And I said, tell them mommy has a VPN. And that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, so, I mean, it goes to that young of a group where, you know, parents might think, hey, well, this is a game. It's harmless. Well, it's not because you still have, you know, those games are not when I grew up. It's not Nintendo where it's rudimentary standalone devices. It's heavily embedded communication systems. And it might look like a game, but your kid is can be chatting with someone that you have no idea who they are. You're inviting them into your world and they can say anything. And so, um, you know, putting those safeguards on your kids too is important. Something that some parents might not be aware of. Yeah. You can get Proton VPN for free. All it does is it takes your connection and does obfuscate it. So it takes those hops along so people can't see who you are or where you're at. It takes a geolocation ability from the IP and protects you in an extra step. And even the paid versions, what, $2 a month or something? I pay $10 for multiple devices. So just another safety measure to kind of... Absolutely. Okay. Well, anything else that you guys want to... You know, when it comes to protecting ourselves in businesses and organizations, if you go to Consumer Protection's website or call them at 1-800-300-1986, they can help anyone who has been scammed or has been part of a situation like this, and they can help get some hopeful resolution for you. But they have tips on their website that they change quite often, too. If you go out to the DigForce website on the DSU site, we have different tips for social media platforms. So if you want to lock down your Facebook or your LinkedIn or your Twitter, how do you do that? What steps do you take um, to make sure that your account is private and can't see your information that you don't want them to see? That's definitely a good resource, and I'm glad you shared that with us. Well, I don't want to keep you busy ladies all day, but I just want to thank you both for coming in, Ashley for co-hosting, and really Erica for being our guest, our sound designer, Spencer Rapp. Thank you for listening, and make sure to subscribe to our podcast, Cyberology. Technology is changing everything fast. Faster than you can say Bitcoin or 3D printed meatloaf. But you know that. What you might not know is a school right here at home is leading the future of cyber. Dakota State University. With cyber, we're solving real problems and transforming education. We're redefining possibilities for the entire state and beyond. Get to know Dakota State. The future's here. See how we're breaking through at dsu.edu.